are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Avercatinos. And we're picking up this evening with a new hypothesis, hypothesis 39, on page 322 of the text, if you're following along. And uh, for quite a while now, we've been talking about the practice of the ascetic life, and in particular, in relationship to one's spiritual elder. And uh, the work takes us deeper into this uh, this line of thought now with uh, hypothesis 39, uh, in particular of a person not being overly confident in themselves and their own virtue. And even to the point of, you know, certainly seeking the guidance of one's elder before uh, doing anything or seeking one's the blessing of one's elder before doing anything or taking any journey. Uh, but also attributing uh, the spiritual gains or protection in the spiritual life to the prayers of one's elder uh, as well. And uh, so this hypothesis uh, challenges us, I think, to look at that relationship on a, a deeper level and, uh, and to ask ourselves, first and foremost, if we have such a relationship with anyone, but... Uh, uh, but also the nature, what the nature of it should be. And I think for any priest listening as well, or anyone who is charged in a special way with the care of souls, the care of others, to be uh, attentive to what's being said here about the responsibility for others, uh, not simply in the counsel that's given, but more importantly, I think, uh, in terms of the, the prayer that is offered on their behalf. And so we're beginning this evening with uh, St. Gregory, Gregory the Diologist, letter A, on page 322. Libertinus, the disciple of the righteous Honoratus, about whom we spoke in previous chapters, at the bidding of his abbot, who had succeeded Honoratus, once went out to attend to some item of monastery business. Out of love that he had for St. Honoratus, Libertinus was always in the habit, wherever he went, of carrying one of his teacher's shoes in his bosom. One time when he was going to Ravenna, a certain woman who was clutching the body of her dead son saw Libertinus and burning with longing for her dead child and believing that Libertinus was a servant of God, grabbed his horse by the bridle, swearing that she would not let him proceed unless she resurrected, he resurrected her son. Libertinus, who did not feel that he was at all capable of performing such a miracle, trembled at the woman's oath and at her request. For this reason, out of exceeding humility, 
he tried to escape from the woman, but she would not give way, and Libertinus was overcome by compassion. He dismounted his horse, knelt, and raised his hands to heaven. After taking from his bosom the shoe which he was carrying with him, he placed it on the beast of the dead child, as, I'm sorry, on the breast of the dead child. As he was praying, the child's soul returned to his body and was resurrected at once. Libertinus took him by the hand and delivered him alive to his mother, who was weeping. Thereafter, he continued his journey. So an interesting notion of carrying, as it were, a relic, even of a living elder, with you as you travel, certainly uh, for one's own protection, uh, but as we see here, uh, because of the, the potential of, of the great work that could be done in relationship to the holy elder. And this is followed up, as is often the case in St. Gregory's writings, with uh, a question from an individual named Peter uh, at, about the specifics of any particular case when they come up. What are we to believe in this case, Peter asked, that the sanctity of Honoratus or the entreaty of Libertinus had the power to work such a great miracle? And Gregory's response is as follows. The woman's faith contributed to the accomplishment of so great a miracle, but also the power of the two men. And for this reason, I reckon that Libertinus was able to perform it. That is to say, he believed more in the power of his teacher than in himself. He was of the opinion that what he besought from God could come to pass only if he placed his elder's shoe on the child's breast. In like manner, it is well known that Elias, uh, or Elisha, holding the cloak of his teacher, the prophet Elijah, went to the Jordan and smote the waters once, but they did not part at all. Yet as soon as he said, where is the God of Elijah, and smote the waters again with his teacher's cloak, at once he made a path through the middle of the waters. Do you understand, Peter, what power humility had in the miracles that came about? Libertinus achieved results equal to those of his teacher when he had recourse to him and invoked his name with faith. So it's interesting how Gregory explains it, you know, that it's all three who were active in the raising of this young boy, the faith of the mother, uh, the intercession of the elder, and all the humility of Libertinus, uh, and his trust in, in his elder and trusting in the prayers of his elder. And, uh, and so Gregory uh, isn't absolute about this. He acknowledges the power of each of those things, the extraordinary faith of the mother uh, who was unwill unwilling to yield until uh, Libertinus would act, uh, but also the, the great uh, prayers and the humility of Libertinus. And, uh, and so he doesn't overemphasize uh, one over the other in its importance, but he does acknowledge that uh, where these things are united, great things can take place. Humility, uh, the prayer, prayer and, uh, of intercession, but also 
this prayer of entreaty that we see from the, the mother as well, her de de the depth of her love for her child. And uh, so we're sort of eased into this in this hypothesis uh, in a very balanced way. Uh, sometimes it's a little different from the hypotheses that we've looked at in the past. They usually st start out with these stronger kinds of stories and then sort of unpack them for us in what follows. But here with Gregory, I think we're given sort of this balanced perspective that yes, of course, that the, there is a value in all three, including though uh, the trust in the prayers of, of the elder. And so th these are not to be neglected. Okay, any thoughts on this first little story? Okay. From the life of St. Gregory the Wonder Worker. Gregory the Great was once at prayer, as was his custom, on his mountain. Suddenly he perceived a tumult and a struggle, and it became clear to those present that he was startled and in anguish over some vision. He strained his ears as if to catch some sound coming from a distance, and after a considerable time had elapsed, during which he had remained unshaken and unmoved, as if the vision had come to a pleasing conclusion, he recovered from this trance of his and glorified God with a joyous voice, uttering the voice, the verse of victory and thanksgiving. Blessed be the Lord who hath not given us a prey to their teeth, Psalm 123. Since those who were near him were amazed at the ecstasy of St. Gregory and sought to learn from him what kind of vision he had seen, St. Gregory, as tradition relates, told them, at that moment, I saw that Satan had been conquered and had suffered a terrible fall at the hands of a youth called Troadius. This Troadius was led by the executioners before the impious ruler, and after being subjected to many tortures, won the crown of martyrdom. This account astounded one of the disciples of the saint who was next to him, a formal former temple temple keeper whom St. Gregory had attracted to the Christian faith and ordained a deacon. This deacon did not dare to question what was said, but at the same time, he considered it beyond the capacity of a man without someone telling him about it to speak about an event without being there himself. He fervently pleaded with his teacher to let him verify what had happened with his own eyes and not to prevent him from going to the places where the miracle had occurred. St. Gregory tried to dissuade him, saying that it was dreadful to be in the midst of murderers and to run the risk of suffering something undesirable through the working of temptation. The deacon, however, said that he had placed his faith in the protection of the saint's prayers and added the following, place me under the protection of your God and no fear whatever of the enemy will then pose a threat to me. Finally, St. Gregory gave him the help of God as a companion and sent him off with his blessing. The deacon went on his way without encountering anything noteworthy on his journey. So interesting. So Gregory has this vision of someone having uh, great faith and enduring and persevering even to the point of martyrdom. And uh, yet... Uh, a deacon who had served Gregory becomes uh, uh, sort of incredulous of the idea that, that 
even somebody like Gregory could have this kind of vision, could know what was taking place at a distance like this. And so begs him leave to go see if he could find out the truth for himself, if he could confirm the story. And it's really the second part of this story, I think that is the most powerful part of it uh, because it shows us uh, really, uh, I think the power certainly of Gregory's intercession, uh, but also the, the kind of danger, I think kind of curiosity can draws into. So it's fortunate that, uh, that the deacon had uh, Gregory's intercession and protection. That evening, he reached the city, and since he was weary from his journey, he saw fit to relax with a bath. The area, however, was dominated by a homicidal demon who lived in the baths and who, whose destructive power worked after dark to the detriment of all who approached the baths. For this reason, they were inaccessible and closed after sunset. The deacon went to these baths and asked the caretaker to open them for him and not to deprive him of the relief that came from bathing. So a curious story uh, that he wants to take a bath on the, the, the end, at the end of his journey uh, and is even willing to go into a place that the locals saw as being possessed by a demon and not just any demon, but one who could have inflict great harm. The bathkeeper assured the deacon that none of those who had dared enter the water of the baths at the hour came out alive, but that after evening fell, a demon was totally in control of the baths. Out of Ignorance, many had already suffered calamities, and these, instead of enjoying themselves as they had hoped, came upon lamentations, their graves, and mourning. The bathkeeper related these and similar stories to the deacon, but the latter would not relinquish his desire in the least. Rather, he persisted in coercing the caretaker in every way possible to allow him to go inside. After all this, the bathkeeper so as not to incur danger for himself from the stranger's ignorance and thinking of his profit, handed the key over to him and departed. So we begin to see the faith emerge that the deacon had in, in Gregory and Gregory's intercession and protection. As soon as the deacon had entered and had taken off his clothing, the demon began to cause all kinds of fearful and terrifying things. Then there appeared various apparitions resembling fire and smoke. These apparitions were gradually transformed before his eyes into men and beasts. And they made all kinds of noise, becoming so bold that they surrounded his person, singing and lunging at him. But the deacon, undaunted, made the sign of the precious cross and invoked the name of Christ. In this way, he passed through the first bath chamber without anything happening to him. However, when he advanced further, he encountered more frightening sights. The demon took on a more fear fearful appearance and at the same time created the impression that the building was about to be demolished by an earthquake. The floor looked as if it were being split apart from beneath, revealing a fire below with burning sparks flying out from the water. But once again, the deacon used the same weapons, the sign of the precious cross and the name of Christ, 
and he invoked the aid of his teacher's prayers. In this way, he drove away these images and the terrifying apparitions. When he emerged from the water and went towards the exit, he was hindered again since the demon controlled the door. However, again, undeterred, the deacon destroyed this obstruction by the same power and the door opened at the sign of the cross. After everything had turned out in accordance with the deacon's desire, it is said that the demon shouted to him in a human voice that he should not regard as his own the power through which he was enabled to escape disaster. For this voice described the escape from the woes to one who had entrusted the deacon to the protection of him who can truly protect us, that is God. The deacon having been preserved in the way that we have said, this fact amazed, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let me start that again. The deacon having been preserved in the way that we have said, this fact amazed those who were familiar with the place because no one who had hitherto dared enter the baths after sunset had come out alive afterwards. The deacon then recounted to them all that had happened to him, learning from them what exploits the martyrs had endured in that district of the city. Supplementing these exploits with all that had happened to him and all that he had seen and heard, whereby he had been taught by experience itself about the power of a great teacher's faith. He left to his contemporaries and to posterity as well, a common means of self-protection. That is, I'm sorry, that of entrusting ourselves to God through priests. Such a tradition has prevailed throughout the church to this day, but especially among the people of that city in view of the help extended at the time by St. Gregory to the deacon, which is preserved in pious memory. So, uh, preserved by the intercession of priests, the intercession of another. And, uh, and yet within the story, uh, we are, are told that it's also, and more importantly, the sign of the cross in the name of Christ. And uh, no doubt this was taught to the deacon by Gregory himself, uh, that it's not only the intercession, uh, but the uh, living witness of, of the saints and the elder that becomes most important, that not only did he seek out uh, Gregory's intercession uh, during these trials uh, within the baths, but he imitated him in calling upon the Lord, but also making the sign of the cross and thereby being left unharmed. Uh, a couple of comments here. Uh, let's see. Rachel says this happens when we, we in our ascetic efforts in union with Christ try to divest ourselves of self and the world. Uh, were you speaking of this one or the previous reading, uh, Rachel? Uh, to, just to follow up there, let me. No, and just, and Anthony says, I just finished reading St. Bonaventure's Life of St. Francis. It made the real power of intercession more real to me. St. Francis and his friars are very much in the mold of these fathers. It shows me the real Catholicity of the faith. Yes, I think, you know, in both East and West, we see the emphasis and on and the power of intercession and the intercession of the saints. And certainly in our day-to-day -day life, 
uh, it's a common practice for us. We celebrate their feast days. We develop relationships with particular saints, uh, seek out their intercession. Uh, often we'll do novenas to, to particular saints and uh, in the East, you know, certainly icons uh, standing before and praying before the icon of one's particular saint and seeking their intercession. And so those who know this deep communion uh, with the living God uh, are to be turned to. St. Philip Neri said that whenever we are struggling, we should make ourselves beggars. In fact, we should go from saint to saint, begging their intercession. And this is what we see coming forward here. You know, certainly Gregory uh, was a living saint and uh, and also by virtue of his office uh, has a certain grace associated with it as well as intercessor on behalf of his people and those in his care. Uh, and, uh, and so there... I think what all of this emphasizes most of all for us is uh, the, the power of Christ active within his body, and in particular through the lives of his holy ones, his saints. And, uh, you know, again, we aren't uh, Christians in isolation. You know, for us, this emphasizes, again, there is no such thing as a, an individual Christian. We're part of, part of the body of Christ and, and uh, united to the, you know, communion of saints. And so it should be a, a common reality for us that we are seeking out the intercession uh, of the saints who are close to us or have shown us great care in the past, as well as those who in our life uh, we have found to be holy gods and, uh, and those to whom God has entrusted us uh, to seek uh, out their prayers on our behalf as well. Any other comments? Okay, Rachel, if you're talking about this particular story, uh, I think you're right. No, I think in each of each of them, really, there is a divestment of self of not trusting uh, in one's own capacity or ability or anything that we might possess within the world, uh, that it is rather what comes to us from Christ. And certainly what uh, St. Gregory would be offering this deacon isn't anything of his own, uh, but interceding for him that God would give him the strength and the grace that is needed. Any further comments before we move on? Okay. From the Gerontcon, Abba Daniel said, Abba Arsenius once summoned me and told me, give relief to your neighbor so that when he departs from this world to the Lord, he may plead on your behalf and it will be well with you. So, you know, the poor become our advocates. You know, the blessed ones of God, uh, as we hear in the Beatitudes, uh, the poor in spirit, the poor in this world, and especially those uh, to whose aid we've come uh, in this life, become our advocates before the judgment seat of God. And so we ask them to plead our behalf, uh, even now, on our behalf now. A brother from Skidis came to Abba Ammon and said to him, 
Father, my elder is sending me on an errand, but I fear falling into fornication. At whatever hour you are bothered by the temptation of fornication, answered the elder, say, O God of hosts, by the prayers of my spiritual father, deliver me. One day, a young woman tried to detain the monk by force, and the monk cried out in a loud voice, O God of my spiritual father, deliver me. And oh, the wonder, he immediately found himself on the road leading to the skeet. Now, I've often talked about uh, seminary training here, and uh, I'm not here to bash seminaries, but I, I think sometimes these stories are, are illuminative in that regard. Uh, in terms of those who are called to serve in this capacity and how the mind and the heart are formed. And these stories always bring it forward to me that what is most uh, important uh, is, you know, what Cassian would say would be purity of heart and that we would seek and to be formed in all of the virtues. And that part of the formation of priests would be living under holy elders who uh, exemplify obedience, humility, uh, prayer. That, and not to turn uh, the preparation uh, for the priesthood into uh, fulfilling you know, an academic exercise that uh, everything that we read in Climacus and we read in the Evercatino speaks to us, and not only to priests, I think, but speaks to us in our share in the common priesthood of Christ, that what is most important is the formation of mind and heart, that our hearts would become like the heart of Christ, and that we would seek to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect to let go of ego and of self-will, to be obedient as Christ is obedient, and that, uh, that we would keep our gaze constantly fixed upon him, that our prayer would be unceasing, that these are all the things that are needed, uh, not only in terms of our spiritual battle, but in terms of bearing witness to the fullness of the gospel within the world. If we turn it merely into... Uh, or evangelization merely into words, to speaking about the faith, is not going to produce much fruit. It's, it's only going to be when people see the lived reality of the love of the kingdom, the obedience and the humility of Christ, that the, the mind and the heart is going to be touched. And uh, if we ignore this, we, we run in vain. And the efforts of the church as a whole are in vain. And very quickly, things begin to crumble. And that's been true of the priesthood, as we've talked about, as a whole. Uh, the, not only how scandalous you know, things have become, but how, how deeply that has diminished uh, the, the faith of those within the church and, and have even driven many from it rather than been, uh, being an inspiration to them. Carol writes, what would you recommend for a young man who feels drawn to the priesthood in this day and age? Uh, I would say to keep his focus upon Christ. You know, ultimately it is Christ who says, follow me. 
and uh, to be most attentive to the formation of mind and heart, to put the question of priesthood on the back burner and allow God to speak that word uh, to him in such a way as a fruit of uh, this deeper inner response to God in, in his life. Uh, that it's not about talent and it's not about personality or particular gifts. It is about conformity to Christ and the action of the Holy Spirit within the life of the church and the life of the individual. And, uh, and so I've, I've never gotten a good response from people when, especially young people, when they come asking about a vocation, when I say that, put the idea of a vocation on the back burner. Uh, because there is this, you know, kind of urgency that we often feel interiorly, uh, and which is, I think, natural. And this kind of uh, being drawn to a vocation, and it can take on sort of this romantic aspect, or can be idealized, and uh, and that can be a way in which God draws a particular person along a certain path. Uh, but it has to be tested, and the individual has uh, has to have the opportunity to mature both emotionally and spiritually, and again to be responding in particular to a, a call that comes from Christ, not simply from the ego, or even from those around them, or even from those within the church, uh, as we've so often talked about before. That you know people can put forward the notion, you know, you should be a nun, you should be a priest. And that might be their judgment from externals or from what little they know of you, but it might not be the will of God. And, uh, and so we have to show great care. There has to be discernment that is, develops within an individual's heart. And that discernment comes through purity of heart and humility. And, uh, and so we do no favors, I think, in rushing individuals into holy orders or to, to the priesthood. And uh, I think in, in terms of how the church as a whole speaks of vocations and, uh, and you know, those in positions that are vocations directors, vocation directors for diocese, you know, how they speak of these things is important as well. But, uh, it has to go back a lot further than that. I mean, you know, true vocations, I think, begin within the family and what is seen and experienced there and how the mind and the heart have been formed from the earliest years of a person's life. One person can really bring about an extraordinary change. You know, and we've talked about this before within a family, within a church community, but within the church as a whole, that uh, they bear witness to something that is far greater than themselves. And, uh, and when they do so, when they provide no impediment uh, to, the act, uh, to the action of God's grace within their life, then uh, people are able to see something with great clarity that they would never have seen uh, before. And uh, I came across a little quote from Paul Evdekimov earlier today. He's, I've mentioned him before. 
And, uh, and he says something interesting about saints in particular that I'd just like to share with you. Uh, he writes, the individual to whom one ascribes a strong personality merely presents a particular mixture of natural elements with certain prominent traits. Despite these salient traits, such a person ultimately creates only the impression of deja vu. A saint is striking because of a countenance unique in the world, because of a light that is always ultimately personal. He or she has never been seen before. And I thought that quite a, a curious thing, uh, because in our culture, you know, the external aspects of a person's personality uh, is often what is put forward as somehow being uh, powerful or unique. And what F. Dokumov is saying is it's just the opposite. It's a kind of deja vu. It's something that we are used to seeing and have seen so many times before in various manifestations. You know, what the world uh, regards as powerful or engaging or entertaining or intellectually stimulating. But, but if Dekimo says, is with each saint, there is something that the, the world has never seen before. As God acts in and through that individual, their character and personality, the world is presented with something that they've never encountered before. And uh, this is interesting because it tells us that, you know, no saint is alike, you know, the, that there's something that God acts, does, and, and how he acts in and through each individual that is unique and powerful. And, uh, and again, that speaks to us about how powerful an individual saint could be for the life of the church as a whole and for the world that men and women encounter in them the action of God's grace. And often there is a kind of providence in that, a holy genius that God acts in, his, in each generation with what is needed. Now, whether or not individuals in that generation respond to the grace of God is another thing. Uh, but I think what Evdokimov says is true. You know, we're not called to go back to the past in the sense of becoming doing exactly what these men did or various uh, women did in the past. That we, we are to imitate them in this radical openness to the action of God's grace in our life. And, uh, but it's to be for the world of our time and in accord with the wisdom and the providence of God. This is what will speak to the hearts and minds of the people of our day. And you know, again, in my mind, this teaches us a whole lot too about what we would see and should see in formation of children, but also formation, as we've talked about here, in seminaries too. It's not getting everybody to fit into this nice little image of what we think a priest should be. I mean, the action of God's grace is going to always act through that person, through that character, take hold of what is natural and elevate it by, by his grace. And so there is, you know, to try to fit people into this particular box of what the, the program for priestly formation tells us is, you know, necessary 
is not uh, necessarily going to produce what the church needs, which is saints. And so, you know, when there's something lacking within the life of the church, we, we need to have this kind of clarity. Uh, and most, most of all for ourselves in regards to our own responsibility in living out the faith, of removing the impediments within us uh, to, to living out the gospel fully. I think I went far beyond your qu question, Carol. Sorry about that. And I don't even know if I answered it. I got on my soapbox there, but I, I hope I did, at least in the first part. Any other comments? Okay. So letter uh, number three. An elder had someone in the village who served his needs. One time this caretaker was late in coming to the skeet as was his custom. And so the elder's provisions began to run short. And since the servant continued to tarry, his supplies were exhausted. Even what he needed for the handiwork with which he occupied himself in his cell. The elder therefore was upset as he had neither materials for doing his handiwork nor anything to eat. Weighed down by his distress, he said to his disciple, are you willing to go to the village? I will do as you wish, replied the disciple timidly, since he was afraid to, of going near the village for fear of some scandal. But so as not to disobey his elder, he consented to go. Go then, said the elder again, and I believe that the God of my fathers will protect you from every temptation. After, uh, after giving him his blessing, he sent him on his way. The brother arrived at the village, and when he had found the servant's house, he stood outside the door and knocked. It so happened, however, that the caretaker, along with his family, was away from the house that day, outside the village, for a memorial service. In the house, there remained only one of his daughters, who opened the door when the brother knocked. On learning what he wanted, she urged him to enter the house. She simultaneously began pulling him inside, but the brother refused to enter. Finally, after putting much pressure on him, the girl got the better of him and drew him close to her. When the brother realized that he was being bothered by evil thoughts, he sighed from the depths of his heart and said to God, O Lord, through the prayers of my father, save me at this hour of peril. No sooner had he completed this prayer than he immediately found himself by the river, journeying toward the mountain, and he was restored to his elder unharmed. So, again, you know, it, it's, it emphasizes for us uh, the solidarity that exists between ourselves and others in the life of faith. And you know, this young monk knew his, his weakness and had fear because of it. And uh, it was only through, you know, calling out uh, to God through the intercession again of his elder that he was freed from this direct temptation that had come, come to him. And uh, so often, I think perhaps we've lost sight of this, you know, engaged in that spiritual battle throughout the day with our own thoughts that uh, we might take up our prayers as we should or the Jesus prayer or the rosary. 
but also, and well, certainly in the rosary, we are seeking the intercession of Mary, but, you know, to be calling upon the saints in particular to intercede on our behalf as well, that we, you know, see this, I think, as part of the, the treasure house of grace that we uh, have available to us in and through the church, that uh, we aren't alone on the battlefield. And certainly we have the saints with us, we have Christ with us, but we also have those who we are bound to spiritually uh, through such relations that are described here in these readings. Any comment on this or any of the stories so far? Okay. Number four. Abraham, the disciple of Abbasizos, was once troubled by a demon. Being clairvoyant, the elder knew that the disciple had fallen. He rose at that very moment, lifted up his hands to heaven, addressed this prayer to God. O God, our Savior, who desirest not the death of a sinner, but that he should return and live, heal thy servant Abraham and deliver him from the temptation of the demon. Abraham was immediately healed. And so, again, we see the, the, the bond of love and the awareness that this, this bond creates. And on some level, we, we have no trouble understanding that, say if it's bet uh, between a mother and a child, that often the mother will have, you know, this insight to the suffering uh, of her child or a child being in danger and we'll, we'll pray or be aware of, of what's going on on some level or another. And uh, I don't know, my mom doesn't mind me talking about this, but you know, a lot of my uncles served in the military and uh, one of my uncles was in uh, Korea uh, and uh, is it, do I have this right? Is this the one that she uh, had this sense of him and kept going into his room looking at his shoes? Or was that Bill? I'm, I'm sorry, you have to unmute yourself. That was Bill. He was a, he was a uh, gunner on a fighter plane. Uh -huh. And uh, it was shot down. And the 19-year-old pilot went down with a plane. My brother pulled his uh, eject the cord on his uh, life jacket, and he mm -hmm. floated in the water for seven hours before uh, that he was rescued. Mm -hmm. He he was afraid to go in water over his head after that for the rest mm -hmm. of his life. Yeah, but uh, it was him that my mother kept going. She knew she felt something was going going on, and she kept going in his room and looking at his shoes. Yes, right. And so, on a natural level, you know, we see the power of that bond of love. That often, you know, this isn't the first kind of story. I'm sure that many of us here have heard, and uh, and we would expect it would be even more, more so of those who know this bond of love in Christ and have the care of souls, that they would be ever so sensitive 
uh, to the needs and the sufferings uh, of others and be interceding on their behalf. And finally, in this section number five, an elder sent his disciple to the well to draw water. The well was a long way from their cell, but the disciple forgot to take a rope with him. Only when he reached the well did he realize that he had not taken a rope to lower the bucket. At once, he prayed to God with faith, and oh, the wonder, the level of the water rose up. After the disciple had filled his jar, the water once more went down to its natural level. And so here presented with, you know, certainly a miraculous uh, event. Uh, and I'm sure would be dismissed by many as simply being hagiography uh, or, you know, the exaggeration that we would find in such stories. But uh, nonetheless, when presented with an obstacle, uh, we've come across this many times before you know, flooded rivers and things uh, of this nature where, you know, an, uh, a disciple is preserved through the prayers or aided through the prayers of his elder. Letter D from St. Barsanufius. A brother asked an elder, if I'm instructed and given a blessing, by the fathers to go somewhere. And I happen to be walking along a road on which there is an ambush set by brigands. And yet I need to cross it. How should I do this, Father? Without taking any precautions, setting my trust on the blessing or in some other way. If it turns out that I suddenly run into brigands, what concern should I have for myself or the items that I'm carrying? Moreover, if I neglected talking to my elder beforehand regarding the brigands, should I perhaps return and mention it to him? So curious, you know, how, how far am I to trust uh, in the protection and the intercession of my elder? The elder responded to these inquiries as follows. When we receive a blessing from one of the Holy Fathers for some obedience, we should believe that we have God's help and we should have confidence. Just as in the world, when one hands his house over to some mighty nobleman, this nobleman will look after it very carefully out of respect for the donor. So much more will God also protect one whom the saints, whose order he is carrying out, have entrusted to him. Holy Scripture says about God that he will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their supplication and will save them. So at the heart of things, we should trust in the grace of God and the protection that he provides us. And in this sense, not be driven by anxiety or inhibited by anxiety. But the elder goes on. In every way and in every instance, then, we should fulfill the obediences of the holy elders exactly. And if we do so, it will redound to the help and the salvation of our soul. If it should happen that after we have received our orders, we encounter vexation and distress in the course of things, or God allows us to fall to temptation along the way, let us not lose our trust or permit our minds to tell us that those who gave us our orders and placed us under God's protection are weak, such that we become scandalized by them. If it so happens that after the obedience was given, 
we lose something or are even wounded. So a, a sort of a deeper level of faith is required here that even with the intercession of a holy elder, that we don't necessarily know what God is doing in certain circumstances. And so even after having asked for the prayers of our elder or sought the intercession of certain saints, when we experience uh, some difficulty or some cross or trial, that we do not want to lose faith or to become scandalized by, by that. And often this happens. You know, I think certain things will take place in our lives where we begin to lose faith. Our faith is shaken, you know, not only in those uh, who we've entrusted ourselves to, but also, more importantly, to God. Let us recall how the divine apostle himself, although he was a strong and perfect saint, it fell into many afflictions, all of them painful at that. How many perils I endured and the Lord rescued me from all of them. And many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord shall deliver them out of them all. And also that we must through many tribulations enter into the kingdom of God. Elsewhere, again, the Holy Scripture says, a man who has not experienced temptations does not have experience and has not been tested. Let us keep it well in mind that no good thing is accomplished without vexation, for it faces the envy of the devil. So, you know, the authors here don't want us to fall, and Barsanufius in particular, don't want us to fall into a kind of magical view of the action of God's grace in our life, or the intercession of the saints, or our elders that we do not want to lose sight of the fact that we are engaged in a spiritual battle and spiritual warfare. And when we are asked to uh, uh, engage in that spiritual life in a particular way, or are given some guidance by a particular elder, we, we might be tempted more fiercely uh, as a result of our desire to respond to it that there will be an envy that arises from the devil whenever a person begins to turn more deeply toward God. And we've talked about this before, that people often say, you know, before I begin to take my life, my spiritual life seriously, I seem to struggle less, or things seem to go better in my life. The moment I turn to God, and the moment that I start praying and fasting, then everything seems to fall apart around me, or I feel the cross ever more intensely in my life. And so Barsanufius reminds uh, his disciple here that uh, look at Paul, remember Paul, that, you know, that despite being called directly by Christ to serve him, that he uh, knows that the cross is always going to be a part of his life as a, as a follower of Christ. And that the strength that is given is to endure and persevere through it heroically. And, uh, and so the intercession of the saints, as well as the grace of God, should not simply be seen as something that preserves us from harm or, or allows us to escape uh, certain realities in our life. And we can often use it that way. Oh, God, you know, help me get through this exam that I did not study for, you know, kind of thing. And uh, that somehow, you know, God in his mercy will miraculously lift us above 
uh, the hardship, or even, you know, not to be, you know, uh, jesting about it. But I think there are things in our life where, that we might never expect, uh, having, having given, you know, in the light of our response to God, or our fidelity, that things would take a certain path that they sometimes do, and that we might fall on hard times, or the path might become very dark, for us, we might, you know, experience rejection or betrayal. And uh, again, it's then that we want to keep in mind exactly what St. Barsanufis is telling us here, that, uh, you know, that we should expect that we will be tried and to hold on. He goes on to say, if on the other hand, it turns out that we accomplish our task without anxiety, let us not become prideful and suppose that it is perhaps because we are worthy that we have been saved from anxiety. On the contrary, we should think that because God knows our weakness and because it was not possible for us to endure the affliction, he sheltered us from suffering through the protection of the holy men who gave us our command. Concerning those who have the capacity to endure afflictions and temptation, scripture says, blessed is the man that endureth temptation for when he is tried, etc. So not to become arrogant if one is able to make one's way through the difficult things without anxiety. Uh, you know, that, that that can be the greater danger for one who's more a more seasoned soul, as it were, and has gone through many different trials in their life, seen everything and as it were, and finds themselves being free from that anxiety that often, and perhaps have plagued, uh, has plagued us for decades, all of a sudden being free from that, not to attribute it to one's own strength, but rather to the grace of God, that God is protecting one from it for a particular reason. Be careful that you do not undertake your journey thoughtlessly just because you have a blessing from the holy elders. That is, if you hear something on the way or are informed about some ad adversity, you should guard yourself and do whatever you can to avoid falling into the danger posed by the hazard. And imploring God and keeping in mind the blessing of the holy elders, you should make sure to traverse the hazardous place in the company of others or ask how you may cross it safely, either by that road or by another. And even if you have the pretext of a pious intention, or you propose to visit some holy fathers, and you hear that there are brigands or other dangers in that place, do not set out to traverse that road, trusting only in your pious purpose without safety precautions but make yourself as secure as possible so as to avoid in this way, at least the danger of arrogance. For one should not expose himself to temptation by his own will. He should only endure with gratitude whatever comes his way by God's permission. We are told that some of the fathers wishing to visit other saints who lived deep in the desert, when they heard about brigands or other hazards, postponed their departure, this for us is an example of humility. If you know or are informed beforehand that the road is perilous, ask your elder, what do you think I should do and fulfill whatever he tells you? 
But if you forget to ask him and leaving after receiving a blessing, you remember on the way that you forgot to ask him, it is not necessary for you to return in order to ask him. Beseech God and say with faith, O Master, forgive me my forgetfulness and negligence. And by the supplication of my holy elder and in the goodness of thy compassion, guide me according to thy will. Save me and protect me from everything evil and wicked. So some interesting uh, additions here that one is not to be foolhardy in the practice of the faith and that we are not to put God to the test or ourselves to the test indiscriminately, that when we face trials or tribulations, uh, the unexpected, that we place our trust in God and, and his grace and his providence to bring us through it, uh, but not we aren't to throw ourselves into things uh, where we, we could be harmed. And because again, that is not faith that is can be pride and uh, a lack of humility on our part. And so always to, to seek counsel and not uh, be afraid to ask for additional advice. And if we happen to forget, uh, you know, to ask the counsel of an elder, never to uh, neglect them to pray to God for the protection that one needs and also for the intercession of one's elder. Anthony writes, modern practical question. Does this speak to concealed carry of firearms, especially now when brigandage is more common than in past decades? Wow, I didn't expect to be asked that question. <laughs> concealed carry. I intend to travel a little bit more, and I thought maybe I should get concealed carry and, and start looking at um, carrying in my truck. Right. Yeah, you know, I think there are, are times perhaps when people live in certain areas and or are responsible for taking care of those who are vulnerable, that perhaps something along these lines would be acceptable. I think, you know, I don't want to just offer a quick response to this because I think for something like this, there would be deep prayer that would be necessary. Am I doing this driven more by anxiety than by reality of the circumstances uh, in terms of the necessity of having such a thing? Uh, you know, a, a permit to conceal a firearm and to carry that firearm on our person day in and day out. And certainly I think looking at the world and uh, if we follow you know, social media and the news, you know, great fear, anxiety and agitation can rise in our hearts. And so we could tell ourselves very easily and quickly, I, I need to protect myself and others. And so I'm going to buy myself a firearm to do so. And, uh, but I, th I think given the nature of our faith and the nature of the teachings of Christ, that we would have to, we, we would have a greater responsibility to consider that well, that we would be carrying a lethal weapon. And, uh, and that even though we, there is always this possibility of facing you know, evils within this world and even those who want to do us harm, 
you know, we hear within the scripture, do not resist one who's evil. And that places a kind of burden upon us, you know, in regards to our faith, uh, to seek the wisdom of the kingdom, the wisdom of God, and uh, before we would make a choice such as this. You know, that as Christian men and women, we are bearing witness uh, to the love and the life of the kingdom and what we, you know, prize and value the most. And uh, you know, certainly the early Christians did not carry weapons with them and they faced, you know, martyrdom simply for proclaiming their faith. And there might come a time where that's true for us too. You know, that we live in a society or a culture where, you know, professing to be a Christian is going to make us incredibly vulnerable. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is it we are called to? Well, not to throw ourselves, as we just heard in this story, into situations where we are going to put God to the test or put ourselves into the test, to the test. But nonetheless, we are to trust in the providence of God. You know, the word vulnerable uh, means, you know, directly to, to suffer, to open oneself up to suffering. And that there is something about this that bears witness to the, the love of the kingdom itself, the unconditional nature of that love and the power of that love to conquer evil. And that in the end, it conquers death itself. That this is, by the, you know, the very means, uh, the, the very death of Christ is what brings about our redemption and the redemption of the world. So what is it that we place our faith in? And what is it that we are seeking to protect? And, uh, you know, will we protect our faith uh, in the sense of being willing to give up our life, you know, as easily as we would pull out a gun and shoot someone in order to, you know, bear witness to the sanctity of our own human life. And so there are a lot of questions there. I think that require a lot of prayer. Ambrose adds to this, be inspired by the circumcellions. I'm sorry, I, that I'm lost on that, on, on, your, on your humor. They were ancient heretics who actually tried to attack people on the road in order to become martyred by them. Ah, very interesting. <laughs> wow. I have to go back and study my history a little bit there, a little bit more. Right. So not, you know, not to put oneself to the test. And, but also, I think that was an excellent question, because I think it has, it's running through the minds of many today. And I think every day you see online, people being clubbed over the head, you know, and uh, attacked in subway or just, you know, standing in a laundromat and somebody address, uh, at, you know, directs their aggression or anger toward them. And so it's going to make us feel incredibly vulnerable. And uh, when 9-11 happened, you know, we had uh, a philosopher named John White, Dr. John White, he lives in Pittsburgh here and uh, 
he came and talked about uh, the place of the philosopher, you know, in a time of terror. And precisely to address these kinds of questions, you know, what is the, you know, the Christians in particular response to what we had just experienced? You know, how, how are we to enter into that reality and uh, to, to seek, you know, a wisdom that is being revealed in and through it and to respond to that wisdom, in particular for us Christians that come to, comes to us from the hand of God? What is the distinct and unique Christian response to that? And I, I think we felt incredibly vulnerable as a country. And I think across the board, Christian or not, most people wanted there to be a response and a quick response to what had happened, given the magnitude you know, of the towers coming down and the loss of life. And, uh, and but it was interesting, you know, the day after it took place, we had mass uh, and of, the church was packed. Uh, but, you know, the first reading was from St. Paul. And he was talking about, you know, when you find yourself in trials and tribulation, persecution, first thing you do is uh, seek the aid of God through prayer, inter through intercession, supplication. You know, this is what he's calling his people, how he's calling them to respond to the persecutions that they're facing within the world. And, you know, we as human beings are often going to respond on an emotional level to the, the realities around us. And so we don't want to be foolhardy in thrusting ourselves in the situations as is described here, nor do we want to respond, you know, purely on an emotional level or what is informed by fear or anxiety, or even what is uh, informed by the, the reality of the circumstances that we face as it's presented to us. Uh, because that often will lead to a kind of anxiety that leads us away from trusting in the providence of God. And so, again, getting back to your question, you know, am, is my response, you know, to this and my desire to do this being something that God is leading me to do? And it seems to me a, a person choosing to purchase a, a firearm would want to be praying about that on a very deep level, simply because of what that firearm is capable of doing, taking another person's life. Ambro, uh, Rodrigo wrote Ambrose Donatist in North Africa in St. Augustine's time, right? Paul Pfeiffer, he said to them, but now one who has a money bag should take it and likewise a sack and one who does not have a sword should sell his cloak and buy one. So he said to them, but no, now one who has a money bag should take it and should likewise a sack and one who does not have a sword should sell his cloak and buy one. Yeah, I've, you know, I've heard that used in, in this way many times before. And, but what, what is being spoken of there? You know, what is it that Christians are to arm themselves with? And what is it that Christ has taught his apostles, you know, from the beginning? And so there is a time coming 
where great persecution would afflict afflict them. And they should need to be prepared for that reality and to arm themselves accordingly. And uh, this is where we do not want to proof text, you know, in the sense of pulling out one line from the scripture, but to see it in the whole context of the, the scriptures, the gospel, and then uh, of the life and death of Christ himself, and the constant witness of the saints and the martyrs. The verse before that, he said to them, when I sent you forth without money bag or a sack or sandals, were you in need of anything? No, nothing, they replied. Right. And so, you know, he will provide everything that is necessary, but I don't think he's necessarily speaking here that he's going to provide them with weapons uh, to pr protect themselves or their own skin, that he's going to provide them with the grace that is needed to take up their cross daily and follow him. And uh, again, you know, I think this is why readings like this are so important for us. You know, where is it that we act from in our day-to-day -day life? And how do we deal with the, the agitation, the anxiety, and the fears that are going to emerge out of the realities of living in a world such as ours? that is often driven, driven by this world to power, by violence, by aggression. And what is to be, again, the distinct and unique Christian witness in that regard. Ambrose writes, the New American Bible Commentary at the end of the passage, it is enough. The farewell discourse ends abruptly with the words of Jesus spoken to the disciples when they take literally what was intended as figurative language about being prepared to face the world's hostility, right? You know, when Peter grabs the sword and cuts off the ear of the soldier, you know, I think the fact that Christ restores the ear of the soldier tells us, you know, pretty much, okay, you know, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And uh, so I think we sort of have an answer to that question there. And I think, again, it's e easy for us and on a natural level for us to respond with such questions, but where are we to be living our life? And the answer to that question is on a supernatural level, you know, by, by the grace of God. And we live in accord with the wisdom of the kingdom, not the wisdom of this world. And that the gospel is again a, a revolutionary text and what christ teaches and the truth that he teaches you know is flung in the face of a world uh and uh that would act otherwise or what or the way that we would act naturally if we were to follow our own judgment or our, our feelings or our emotions in certain situations and we haven't come to terms with that. You know, I think the stumbling block of the cross. Uh, we can call ourselves Christians, but when it comes to, you know, picking up that cross, our, our response can be put to the test or our, our faith can be put to the test. Thanks a lot, Anthony. <laughs> so much for my prayers for you. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, no, actually, that was excellent.
question, especially in light of what we were reading here. And I think it allowed us to go pretty deep with it. And so we still have a little bit more to do in this section, and in particular from uh, one of our favorites, St. Ephraim the Syrian, who often brings kind of clarity. So, but we'll stop there for tonight. Uh, we'll pick up, uh, on, actually, no, we will not pick up next week. There will be no groups except the one on Tuesday evening that I'm going to do on Behold His Face. And um, uh, they've looked upon uh, the one that they've pierced, a uh, uh, kind of sustained reflection on this uh, during Holy Week, but the typical groups on Monday and Wednesday will be canceled for Holy Week, okay? But there will be Climacus this Wednesday. All right. So when we close as always, in the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May only God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.